I, mean, I feel very strongly that as a journalist, you don't advocate for any policy. You don't, as a friend of mine said, you don't tell people what to think, you tell them what to think about. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, here with my colleague in the prizes department, Lisa Cohen. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. So we just had our annual changing of the guard. We had the pomp and circumstance of the graduation of the full-time students, and then one day later, the part-time students arrived. We wave goodbye to one group and say hello to the next. And you and I are here all the time. And speaking of that, we are now open for business, accepting entries for DuPont 2019. Enter your best work. Yes, go to our website, dupont.org, and enter your best work. We were just last month having a conversation with our 2018 DuPont Columbia winners, the filmmakers of Hell on Earth, The Fall of Syria, and The Rise of ISIS, in our last Film Friday screening of the academic year. That's right, and you led the conversation with filmmakers Nick Quested and Sebastian Younger, who came up to Columbia to tell our students about how they made this unforgettable film. And you can stream it on Amazon, which if you haven't seen it, I recommend highly that you do. You should definitely check it out. Hell on Earth explains the origins of a pretty complicated conflict, right? The war in Syria. They find the people, they tell the personal stories, and they interweave it with expert interviews and, you know, just gripping, gripping footage from the field. So it has that you are there feeling, um, but you learn a ton as well. Yeah. It's a tough film, but it's, uh, it's beautiful to watch. We understand they screened a thousand hours of footage to put together this film, which is mind-boggling. And then they had a lot of really interesting things to say about it. So without further ado, this is an edited version of the conversation between you and Nick Quested and Sebastian Younger. Nick, tell us a little bit about the origin of this project. Well, Sebastian and I, we went to, actually, we went to Nat Geo and we pitched them 12 ideas, which they all nodded at and went, no. And then as we're sort of getting up, we said, well, we're fascinated by uh, the propaganda of the Islamic State and the misconception that these guys are not hyper-rational. And that sort of sat with them for a little bit. And a week later, they called us and said, we'd like you to do something on that. So we sort of built the idea of, of the film around the how did the Islamic State really come to, to be so prolific? And then at the same time that we had that, there's no story about the Islamic State unless you understand how the war in Syria got to be where it was. And then we wanted to humanize the, the war through, a, through personal experience. And we were lucky enough to find the family. That sounds like a very large thing to pursue in terms of just telling the, the origin story. We, did a, we had a wall in the office and it was themes and characters and interviews we wanted and it was all, what do you call them, little note cards? And then it was all green with ideas and if we made contact and we we're starting to pursue a lead it turned to blue and if it was shot it was yellow and we just tried to turn this board of, you know, basically probably 300 cards and turn it all the other color. So Sebastian, what are some of the obstacles to doing this kind of a film, logistically speaking? Well, um, first and foremost, um, going to Syria, into Syria itself at the point where we started shooting was basically a suicide mission. And because not so much the risks of combat, although that's significant, 
um, but the risk of being kidnapped, sold to ISIS, or kidnapped by ISIS, and having your head cut off. Um, so we were making a film about the Syrian civil war, and we couldn't shoot in, in, in the Syrian civil war ourselves. So I mean, we could do northern Iraq a little bit. Um, but basically, we had to form relationships with, with Syrians who were in the war, uh, including that lovely family um, that made it to, to Turkey. Um, uh, we got a cell phone camera to them a Samsung 7, I think it was, and uh, they were living under ISIS, ISIS control. They shot themselves living under ISIS and then deciding to leave and escaping and getting the, all that they, they shot. So we, for the first time in my life, uh, I made a film that was, I was not on the ground shooting or didn't have any, you know, it was, it was sort of by remote. Nick did all the, I was writing a book and Nick actually did all of the legwork over there. He was, um, uh, a man possessed on the Turkish border, basically. I mean, he really, he, he, 39 trips or something like that. I finally stole his passport and to keep him, <laughs> keep him home. And um, give us a sense of the time. Wait, when was this? What year? Two years ago? Um, we started the project in the summer of 2013 and shot for uh, a year and a bit. Um, a really concentrated period of about a year. We had a lot of journalists working for us. I built a network of journalists and activists um, that were based out of Antep um, with uh, Mahmoud Al-Basha, who ran the Aleppo Media Center. So we would train them and we'd say, this is how we want to shoot. And um, what we're always looking for really is characters. So we want people to understand what it's like to be there and, and so that was a little bit of retraining because they would be much more sort of issue-based um, in their journalism and they would gravitate towards the to the most action-packed, which is not what we, we don't want, but there's only so much war and brutality that you can show before people tune out. So we wanted to see the human side of the war and um, that's really what we had a little bit of refocusing to do there. You're talking about partnering with activists and journalists or training local people on the ground and then having them go out and do reporting for you. You know, how did you all go about vetting footage? Um, and not to mention all the footage in this, you know, geo-locating. I mean, how do you even begin a project like that? We, would, we had a research team that was um, check the provenance of all the footage. We had the local journalists attesting to what they were doing. And then we did so many interviews and we would show people the footage. So we would have first person perspective of what actually happened. So like some of the footage, the archive footage was the most, um, not problematic, but was the most, uh, was of the most dubious provenance. So we would, so the footage in Homs where you see here the, um, uh, the gunfire, I showed it to an FSA general who was actually in the square at the time said, absolutely, that was there. And we would just do that all the way through with every clip um, and find, um, you know, to prove it was actually from where we were saying it was from. And is this something you can find searching on YouTube or where do you go to find this kind of footage? There was some stuff from YouTube. There was some stuff from the FSA itself. There was some stuff from activists that gave it to us. I mean, the a lot of the journalists and activists we cho uh, chose to work with, they were still part, actively part of the struggle and they were choosing to fight the war by 
conveying the information as accurately as possible to people outside. And in the news world, you get it in very short bursts. So you might see that, have seen that clip, but you don't have it. You don't understand it in the context of the of the uh, of the war. You just know it's a, a microbyte. Interesting. Sebastian, how would you characterize your role or your um, narration in the film? Because you never appear on camera. We hear you sort of periodically, um, kind of making connections back to the American audience was my sense. But can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm always loath to be in a film, uh, unless it's about something I'm doing. I, in my film, The Last Patrol, it was about something I was doing. So I was OK. But you know, this is a, a civil war that I'm not part of. And so I, I, what I really abhor is the sort of recent trend in American um, uh, television journalism of putting the correspondent, you know, like seeing him or her, behind, you know, crouch behind sandbags while American soldiers or someone's fighting someone else. Like, the journalist is the medium. It's not, the, they're not the point of the story. But I felt that what I could do is provide some narration to make these sort, these sort of conceptual leaps about this horrific violence that's happening in, um, in Syria. And for example, the violence that this country has perpetrated. Um, and and it's, you, know, you, you see these awful videos of people being tortured and executed under ISIS, and you think, oh my god, what animals? You know, how could they do that? And then what people forget is like within my mother's generation, we were doing that to African American men in the American South. And so I, there were a few very limited spots where I thought, you know what, here's a chance to actually make a really profound point about violence or what have you, about nationalism, um, uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna do it. I mean, speaking of violence, there are some incredibly graphic images in the film. I can only imagine what you didn't include in the film. How did you go about weighing that in terms of what you could show, what you couldn't show? Because as you say. There's only so much, you know, people dial out if they see too much or what's appropriate. Did you all have long discussions about that or how did you navigate that? Uh, I mean, I think we'll both have some answers here, but the, the Mera footage is, is, I would say, arguably the most disturbing in the film. And it's actually, you don't see anyone get killed. Now, how did you all get that? That's a secret. <laughs> I mean, how would it, what, you're talking specifically about. I can't about tell you how I got that. I'm you're sorry. talking, let's explain what we're talking about. It's yeah. the motorcycle footage. Right, in France, the execution in France, the murders in France. But uh, how did he happen to have, or. He shot those murders himself. He shot them himself. Yeah, it was a helmet. He put it was a, a chest, chest cam on himself, a GoPro, filmed it, and then while he was on the run, he edited a 20 minute piece uh, to music in certain cases to certain uh, Nasheeds and then um, mailed it to the um, Al Jazeera in Paris and that was intercepted by the French intelligence and, um, and was buried. In fact, we actually got censored in France and they refused to air the footage, even the way we did it. But what's so interesting about it is we don't show, I mean, it's not, I mean not in, in the literal sense, it's not violent. You don't see you don't see the violence, but it's more disturbing than other footage where you do see the violence, and that's what's such, that's what's so interesting about violence and about the visual image. It isn't always about literally what you're looking at. Right, but I imagine, I mean, in the editing room or 
they say that you all had like a thousand hours of footage. I can only imagine by the end of that, you had seen so much. How do you even begin to reorient yourself for your audience, you know? I mean, that must have been, I guess, whatever served the story and what didn't serve the story or... Well, that's sort of the editing team is meant to be there to be objective. And Sebastian had a level of objectivity about it that I didn't have because I'd spent a long time in uncomfortable conditions um, finding a shot that I thought was the most beautiful shot and the most important thing and we had long discussions about the importance of certain figures and characters like we had a long discussion about the Battle of Aleppo and Hajimara and the Hanano military base and then uh, he finally saw the light but it, it took a while <laughs> I'm the reason it wasn't a four-hour film <laughs> no, I, mean, I, and I didn't fully answer your question earlier my, my role was basically one of the two we were we were both directors and um, Nick as director had an intimate familiarity with a lot of the footage because he he was and I would watch it on the plane on the way home and um, once I was watching the footage and it was like a you know a, it was a battle and then it was a horrific execution and I thought I was listening to it on my headphones and I'm like uh, these aren't working so well and like it, my whole laptop was just like screaming Allah Akbar and like the person next to me is like <laughs> I'm like oh sorry so I my I have another my, beer please my, my role as director was actually I, I, I tried to turn my lack of familiarity with the the, the footage into an asset because I was objective. I would discuss storylines with Sebastian yeah. like while we were shooting and like what's it worth and but I did go down way too many rabbit holes. I went on a big rabbit hole about the arming of uh, the jihadists by the CIA and um, but it's just too much detail and no one really cares. We had enough you know causes and we need to show more effect which is and humanize it to make people understand how this is the greatest tragedy of our, our generation. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of doing an international story for an American audience? Because I think Syria in particular has been a ver very difficult for Americans to get their hands around for whatever reason. And these days, in the era of Donald Trump, I think people are more focused on what's happening here than ever before. I mean, how do you how do you handle that? How do you connect with audiences with international stories? Um, and in some ways, it wasn't that hard because ISIS was such a terrifying prospect and it was so dramatic, and there was such a deep fear that somehow ISIS cells could appear in this country and start cutting people's heads off, you know, in the suburbs of Chicago or whatever. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know quite how paranoid people were about it, but certainly there was a lot of. Um, Fear around ISIS and and just sort of amazement at the the level of the florid level of violence that they were committing. Um, so I, I think the American public had they'd heard of Syria, they knew it was bad, they knew ISIS was very very scary and dangerous. It wasn't that hard to get people to 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 want to watch the film. I think there's, but I I, I agree with you because I've covered a lot of international news stories, it's extremely hard to get the American public to, to be interested in, say, Sierra Leone, right, a war that I covered almost 20 years ago. Um, it's not, you know, it doesn't seem relevant. And so what do you have to do? You have to sort of use a lot of tricks to trigger pe people's emp empathy and human concern and human interest, and, and you, can, you can do that, but you got to work at it. 
I mean, as a print journalist, you know, a, a really good lead and a um, and really, really powerful, descriptive writing. And um, I don't want to call them characters, but people um, that are compelling and that in, in, in where their humanity uh, or lack of humanity transcends borders and cultures and societies. And um, uh, you know, you sort of get all get that mix right, and and people, you know. A, a, a long time ago, a friend of mine, a sort of mentor, an uncle figure that I had, was lucky enough to have in my life when I was a young man and wanted to be a writer. And he said to me, he said, you're writing for people who will have a, your, the magazine on, on their lap with your article open on their lap and the television on. And the first paragraph has to be more compelling than what's on TV. And then the next paragraph also has to be more compelling on and what's on TV, and every single paragraph <laughs> has to be more compelling than television because that's what your competition is, and they're not going to turn it off to read your story. You need scoops. You need things that are exclusive. You th need things that turn people's heads. But you've got to be very careful. It, uh, inexperienced journalists in war zones can, uh, it can end up very badly. So where all did you travel to make this film? How many, I mean, you were in the region. Um, I went to... Um, the UK, Spain, France, Italy, Germany, Switzerland, Greece, Turkey, Jordan, Iraq, northern Iraq. Um, France? France. Yeah. It was basically every, every well, I was out there a lot. I'm sure you knew a lot about the conflict or about ISIS before you went, but what at the end of it sort of surprised you the most? that you took away from it? Uh, it? I think the thing that surprised me most is how, how, more, how the generosity of people who have the least. So at the front line you see the, the least and the most you know, adversarial positions, but they're the f you know, if you're there, they're the most gracious and host, uh, uh, gracious host that you could uh, imagine. So I'm constantly amazed at the humanity that you see when under the most pressure. So um, how many, I mean, you had, you were traveling yourself, but then you also had field producers and other people, correct? Yeah, local producers. We didn't, um, so the reason um, we find the film successful is, or the behavior of people changes less when, you, you know, whatever happens, I'm a six foot two tall white English man. Um, I pull out a camera, people's behavior is gonna change. Um, and people become acculturated to you after a while, but you know the fly on the wall style is you know people's behaviors. Whatever happens, people are still conscious of you being there. Whereas people are less conscious when people pull out cell phones to shoot now. So we think it's a little bit truer to a real you know whatever happens, it's not the same as just being there, but it's closer to real documentary at that point, authentic experience. And that also goes for local journalists. Local journalists can, can be there and be a lot less um, uh, incongruous. So at this point, we were ready to hear from our audience with their questions. And of course, I had a few of my own. Yeah, but first, I realized that I wanted to ask these guys about a really surprising moment in the film where we're suddenly hearing from someone who is better known nowadays for his involvement in the Mueller investigation. I forgot that I really wanted to ask you about Michael Flynn. 
the, the last honest inter interview he ever gave. <laughs> he, at, th at that point, he didn't know that he was going to be invited into the Trump administration. Uh, when did you shoot that interview with him? Was it June? Yeah, Ma uh, no, no, earlier March. It was oh, like oh, it was still it was it was cherry blossoms oh. in in D.C. And the why did you why did you interview him? Michael Flynn is um, uh, an ideologue, um, and um, but he's been at the forefront of this conflict for a very long time, and um, we thought it was very appropriate to hear the you know the intelligence community's perspective on you know the global Islamic. Uh, jihad, as he puts it. It was also, I thought, really interesting to hear, you know, clearly a conservative, um, uh, to hear him making a case for nation building. It's basically what he was doing. It's like, if you want to, if you want to stop the refugee crisis, you got to stabilize these areas. And which, you know, rewind back to Bosnia, that was a, that was a sort of liberal thought. Like, you, you go in, stabilize, yeah, I mean, and so it's so funny to see the idea of nation building sort of flipping from party to party. Um, and I was just amazed because clearly his future and ex-boss Donald Trump um, would have absolutely abhorred that thought. He didn't, you know, he's, and, and, but here, but here we are in Syria. I mean, it's, it's the ironies are, are and we're not leaving. annually. That is not, and it, the, if the um, if America was to leave Syria, the Turks would keep on pushing to Mosul. They will crush the Tur Kurds and and keep going. If but I would like to point out, I think that um, Michael Flynn has done one more honest interview with Mr. Mueller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was wondering if any of the subjects in your film had seen it, and if so, what they, what they thought of it. Um, we've tried to show the film to as many subjects as possible. Um, and uh, amongst the Syrian community, which was our primary um, uh, concern, we were um, thanked... Uh, uh, tremendously for portraying what they felt was as accurate a truth as they could um, have hoped for. We tried to get Michael Flynn to see it, but he didn't. We sent it to him. Um, my question is, with a conflict like this that's continuing today and has new tropes in today's world, how did you know when to stop? Well, you can't... Well, you've answered that because you made me stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you're making a film like this, the editing takes so long, and the and the production and the post production takes so long. There's such a long lead time that you're never. It's never going to be um, a a a kind of journalism that that reflects on what's happening right now. It never will. So what you have to do is say something enduring about war, um, and you have to you have to make a film that's true in its essence at any point afterwards. Whatever, whatever, ISIS is just about eradicated now. It doesn't mean that the forces that allowed ISIS to rise up um, are no longer part of our reality, right? That, that's enduring and that's something we have to understand and guard against. So in, in some ways we weren't trying to be current for as long as possible, we were trying to be insightful and, and accurate. Hey, I want to thank you guys for coming. I'm a big fan of you guys' work. I guess I have two questions for you. The first one is for both of you. Um, like, where do you see the future of a war correspondency going, considering that uh, it's now kind of drawing a lot of the freelance types, like uh, it's, it self-selects a certain type of person, versus like the legacy uh, established backed correspondent? Like, you know, what are your insights on 
the, uh, the field, I guess. And my second question, I guess, is more directed towards Sebastian because I, I caught you on the Joe Rogan podcast, and I, I was wondering um, what your views are on the growing. I don't know if rift is the right word, but the you know the the different directions that internet media and and independent content creators are taking versus legacy news organizations and what that means for content like this or even just in general. So, so I, I think there's always been a lot of freelancers in reporting foreign stories. I mean, when I was in Sarajevo, well, most of the journalists there were freelance. I mean, they had varying levels of um, relationships with news organizations. So some were, you know, the equivalent of plankton, like I was in the food chain, and some <laughs> were a little, a little bigger and a little bigger. Um, but there weren't that many sort of salaried um, correspondence there, and uh, which was great for the freelancers, and and I, it's still the case. Um, I I I feel like a free and open society depends on freedom of the press and vigorous journalism. It's the oxygen of democracy. The financial structure that underlays that endeavor is clearly changing, but. Because our society depends on it, I can't imagine it's going to go away. I think we're, I think it's some somehow we're going to figure out some other way of getting money to the people that are doing it. It's utterly essential to this society. So, my question really is: Your projects are going on to other conflict areas. How about shining a light on peace? How about shining a light on um, humanitarian workers? There are so many of them that are helping you know our fellow people uh, i can understand war movies you know they grow they take a draw attention but there's so many people working to help each other out that well, why not uh, <laughs> um i mean pe peace and war i mean if you write about either you're writing about the other and um i think the the dynamics that propel war are are, are extremely complex and um, ancient and um, peace is not achieved by people wishing for peace. It, it, I wish it were that way uh, because most people do wish for peace and it still keeps not happening. Um, so you, you, the, the, for me the, the purpose of one of the purposes of my journalism is to try to prevent or end catastrophes like this. And the way I've done it is by trying to call attention to for people in this wealthy, powerful country to make them aware of tragedies they may not be aware of that they can actually stop, possibly stop. And so I make films about war because those are the situations that need to be stopped. Peace is great and it's lovely, but it doesn't require an urgent action the way war does. And you guys did have some um, humanitarian voices in this film. I mean, you had the guy from Human Rights Watch, and you had some local humanitarian. We have the White Helmets. We have a, a much longer section, which is a portrait of the White Helmets that you can see on the website. Um, there were so many moments that really stood out, but one of them for me was that scene where they were getting ready to get on the boat, the family, and for the first time, you hear from the wife who says, I'm not going, and this whole thing has been crazy, and I didn't want to go from the first. And suddenly, you know, it's a universal moment of like a husband and wife disagreeing about it. And you didn't shoot any of that. Who shot that? Was so I shot some of that. I was in that room and shot uh, them putting the life jackets on and 
and then I went with them to the boat um, and we almost got arrested by the Turkish police so um, but that's a, um, so but uh, Marwan shot that so it's Rawan there and his wife there and, and Marwan shot it but that's exactly what I'm talking about if I'd have been there I don't think they'd have had that argument um, but because his, he just flipped the phone up and kept on shooting and we just told him keep on shooting keep on shooting and we kept on telling them we're not we're interested in the most banal and, and benign moments. You know, we, we always have our joke, we're, we're interested in people cleaning their teeth. Right. How do you clean your teeth? How do you make coffee? What do you ha do first thing when you wake up? How do you feel when you wake up? Because we want to know how people feel and what, what is, what is going, what's happening and wh how they feel about it. Not, you know, that's super important for us. So when you get those little moments, that makes it all make sense. But because he managed to flip his phone up like that, it, it, you've got that little moment. And in actual fact, that's one long shot that we had to cut um, because we didn't actually have coverage. In terms of what you wanted to do with the film and, and bring and raising people's awareness in the West to the Syrian crisis, were you trying to... I mean, I felt certain sections of the film are very pro-Western intervention. Was that a conscious decision? Is that, what you, is that another thing that you were trying to do with the film? And how much of a distance did you maintain with the politics of the Syrian crisis as you were making the film? I, I, mean, I feel very strongly that as a journalist, you don't advocate for any policy. Mm -hmm. You don't, as a friend of mine said, you don't tell people what to think, you tell them what to think about. All the wars that I've covered have been ended or diminished by Western military intervention, every single one, including the civil war in Afghanistan um, that experienced an abrupt drop in civilian casualties after 2001 when NATO showed up um, and now, when American forces are pulling out, civilian casualties are rising again. So that's not a pro-war or an anti-war statement. It's just statistically true. Um, so with a film like this, that what I really I'm I, I'm not I'm certainly not arguing for intervention in Syria. Uh, I mean, I think early on, more pressure might have diverted the flow of violence away from civil war into something else. I mean, I think you can pressure regimes and governments towards a democratic process that might avoid civil war. I think you can do that. But once a war is really going, a war like this is extremely hard to intervene. So I'm, de I'm definitely not, I wouldn't advocate for that in a film, even if I believed in it, I wouldn't advocate for it. But I do want people to think about the consequences of having wars go on and on and on and not intervening early. And, and um, but, but more importantly, I felt as the more I watched this, the more I watched the footage and thought about this, the more important I thought it was to try to make a film that, among other things, well, A, humanized refugees, because that was such a sort of toxic topic a couple of years ago. Um, but B, I wanted to make a film that erased the self-flattering moral distinctions that we make between us and uh, organizations like ISIS. Um, ISIS right now is psychotically, or was psychotically violent. We're, we are not right now. But we have that violent, every society has that kind of violence in its past. Every society uh, has a strain of nationalism um, that can be weaponized. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that when we talk about violence, we talk about nationalism, we talk about countries defending themselves, that we do understand that what ISIS is doing, 
what we're doing, what the Afghans are doing, what all of these people, what, we're, what, what they, they are all doing is basically the same. Um, and uh, that to me is a very important distinction so that we can then decide what level of violence requires, a, uh, legally and morally requi requires action. Um, Nick Quested and Sebastian Younger, thank you so much for thank coming you. up tonight. It was thank really you. nice to hear from you. I really enjoyed speaking to those guys about the film. It was, I learned so much. This is Sebastian Younger's second film Friday. Apparently he came up a couple of years ago and talked to the school. He's always willing to do that. It's very gracious. And it's actually his second DuPont win as well. That's right. And as we said earlier in the podcast, you too can win your own silver baton. We are open for entries for the 2019 DuPont Awards. Check it out at DuPont.org. Our deadline is July the 1st, so don't wait. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by Sarah Wyman, class of 2018, with assistance from our recently graduated DuPont fellows, Katia Tubman and Ingrid Holmquist. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. And we'll be back next month with another episode of On Assignment.